This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy who once said the best way to cure idle hands was to build something, so keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife, and by WNC Original Music, music of the Carolinas and of the nation. Do yourself a favor and visit WNCOriginalMusic.com and listen to their podcast today. And by Folklore Brewing and Meadery, quite literally the best brew in Alabama. And now let's have a song from Hope Griffin. One more stop to make before I leave this town. And the rain outside my window is pouring down I can't believe I'm really leaving this time The needle's reading fall and my foot hits the floor I wonder what you'll say when I get to your door to cry This is goodbye Yeah It's But why Does it take Leaving for you To want me to say And why Would it take Dying to realize what you didn't say Hey What you didn't say The highway's getting longer Every mile I drive and Sometimes I still wish That you were by my side some things I know you can't control, even if you try. A hundred miles in, and now I'm pondering if I am still the same girl you said you loved back then. I think a part of me will always be. Say. And why would it take dying to realize what you didn't say? Goodbye never seems so absolute, and I won't waste any more tears on you. put me through Someday And there'll be no telling when I 
face will grace your mind again And you wish you said something Yeah, you wish you said something But I you had to say Cause tonight this road is leading me on to a brand new day No, I won't be around to hear what you had to say Cause tonight portion of our program is brought to you by visitnorthalabama.org, the Mountain Lakes Tourist Association. Visit the 16 North Alabama counties and make this state what it is. The North Alabama Hallelujah Trail features 32 churches that are at least 100 years old and standing on their original sites, still holding public services, all accessible to the public. These are the portrait of North Alabama's history and tell the remarkable story of early Alabamans from the early days. The Hallelujah Trail. Whatever you do, you can do it better at North Alabama. So visit northalabama.org or visit North Alabama at hashtag visit North AL. I met you on a Tuesday. Three tables from the state. And if I'd known any better, I'd have left before I caught your name. You shot it like a bullet Witty words and silky smile Promising me only Your love would be worth my while Slow down, you silver bullet isn't this what you've waited for? But you move just like a freight train, and it's more, more than I bargain for. Passion, no rhythm 
in our blood and though good times were many the worst was yet to come so now your bell is full of liquor and you sling your words like clay your demand and I justify you for the dust that you leave in your way honey slow down you silver bullets tell me just what are we fighting for cause you move just like a freight train and it's more more than I bargain for la 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 Listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host, Sean Dietrich, and we're coming to you live via the podcast, airwaves, and the radio waves all over this fine nation. And it is a bona fide privilege being here coming to you through the speakers of your minivan or through your cell phone or any other means which you choose to listen to us. We just want to say thank you. You probably know that there's a little difference here. We're in a studio, we are recording these podcasts in a studio. Uh, up until now, we've recorded the last 101 episodes live, uh, and this has turned into an editing nightmare, trying to uh, to make it sound halfway decent. We've discovered that it sounds and is a whole lot easier uh, doing it in the studio. But this is very hard for me, uh, as I said at our last episode, it's very hard for me because I, somehow I've got to be an actor and, and being an actor, 
means you have to pretend that there's an audience uh, out there. I, I speak uh, for a living, uh, though I don't know why. Uh, and so I talk to audiences, and I'm kind of used to, to gauging uh, my stories with an audience as my meter, if you will. Without them, uh, my mediocre stories and mediocre uh, whatever you call these things uh, have significantly dropped by a few notches and turned into uh, God knows what. So it's a learning experience for all of us. We're going to get through this together. Uh, we will probably probably uh, bore you to death. So just want to say thanks once again for tuning in to America's Leading boring podcast this is a time of year that gets me all excited because even right now i can look out my window here in this studio and i can see the gold grass of winter in florida now winter in florida is an interesting thing because winter in florida is not winter at all now to you if you're from somewhere else let's just say north carolina or virginia or, or the godless north, like New York City, where where the worm dieth not, and people are subjected to everlasting torment of the urbanic kind. Let's pretend that 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 you have December up there, up up north. That is winter. That is real winter. That's when it snows. That's when the air gets just biting cold and rips at your nose and gives people frostbite. Winter. Down here, at least in the panhandle of Florida, right about 25 miles from the Alabama line, means that you will suffer 60-degree weather. Now, it's still every bit as intense to us as your winter up north is to you. Now, just because it's only 60 degrees and, or 58 in some extreme cases does not mean that we suffer any less than you do. We are the kind of people who learn how to bundle up as soon as the thermometer gets below 70 degrees. So 60 degrees to us might as well be a blizzard. 58 degrees, you can hear your teeth chattering. A lot of people in the nursing home right over across the street at Bedpan Alley can hear their teeth chattering in the glass beside their bed. This is cold weather cold weather and i can look outside and see that gold grass and i'm reminded of this time of year when i was first introduced to the world of professional music it didn't come right away now i had been playing music in church since i was a very very young boy around nine years old my father bought me my very first piano and his way of teaching me piano was to lug that upright thing downstairs to our basement and place it in the corner in a insulated concrete room where nobody else in the house could hear me and he said learn how to play it if you want to play it no lessons no nothing he said if a man wants to learn to do something he'll learn how to do it if he don't want to learn how to do it he won't this is a very uh, basic concept among country people, one that stayed with me for a long time. If a man wants to do something, he'll do it. If, if, he, if he doesn't want to do it, then he will, he will get Congress to do it for him. So I went down there, and I would play my piano. Uh, I wasn't very good at it. Nobody's any good when they start anything, but uh, I did practice and play uh, little melodies like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Old Rugged Cross. My family's favorite hymn was Old Rugged Cross. My granny's favorite hymn, my mother's favorite hymn, I think it was my father's favorite hymn, although he really, really did like Swing Low Sweet Chariot. And so I, 
I learned how to play this melody one finger at a time. Boom, 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 boom. Very, very slow, moving very slow at, at, the, at the pace of a funeral dirge. Boom, boom, boom. Far away, stood an old rugged cross. And this was my introduction to music. I was invited to sing in the adult choir and children's choir, just like all the children in our church were. We were a tiny little church with with uh, rafters and wooden floors and a tiny steeple that was a little bit cockeyed. And so we did not have many people to choose from when it came to musical talent. So if you had any inclination at all toward music, you were thrust upon the stage to sing any song that you could come up with. There were a few standards in our church that were very uh, popular. We had, uh, you know, songs like uh, There'll Be No Thorns in His Crown or we had songs like uh, Love Lifted Me. Uh, another crowd favorite among my church people were uh, Are You Rapture Ready or Will You Rot in Hell? Uh, we had songs that were that were meant to stir the soul. We had songs that were meant to bring you low to a place of contrition. This is how we deal with things. We had the song Just As I Am, and we would, like all Baptist churches worldwide, we would sing the chorus of this song for 757 times repeated until one sinner would come out one of them pews and walk down the aisle and confess to a heinous crime, even if he had not committed it. If he was was not there in that church and we had no heinous sinners to confess crimes we expected someone to rise and confess something anyway many times the church organist a little old lady named miss Lim, would come on down and she'd confess to to something really horrible and then we would finally get to break and go to lunch Music was important. It was important to my church, and I found that people love to hear the old hymns played by the next generation. So I played piano a little bit in church when I got a little bit better, and my fingers got a little more independence to them. I played guitar at youth group meetings and camp meetings and all sorts of little uh, functions that the church put on. Sometimes we'd play in the corner of a Wednesday night potluck. I have glorious memories of playing in church, and I learned to fester my musical uh, abilities, what meager ones I have, in church. Which I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because you learn certain musical devices in church, such as uh, Sister Betty and Sister Lynn both taught me how to play Old Rugged Cross, and they taught me how to do the right-handed trill uh, with an octave on the Old Rugged Cross. Uh, it's it's kind of the equivalent of a trill done with a trumpet player that goes where he holds a note out for a long time. We do it on piano, it just goes ding 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 Some people take the melody and they'll play it all in a trill. Ding 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 Can't believe I just did that. But this is uh this is a new territory for me. I'm doing this show with just the one microphone and no audience. I can make a complete fool of myself and no one's around to see it. For all you know, I might be doing this in my jockey boxer shorts, which I am most certainly not. Most certainly not, I guarantee you. I might be wearing my pajama bottoms, but not my jockey shorts. And so I'd play this melody in church, the way church people wanted to hear it, and I learned how to get them going. Now, to get church people going is a big deal. You get church people going, uh, you get them maybe standing. 
And if you really get them going, you get them standing and raising their right hand. And if you get them really, really going, they'll stand, raise the right hand and say, amen, or tell it, brother, or, or anything of that sort. You do that and you know you have reached down into the soul of man. And I learned something. I learned something during this part of my life. People will forgive you of anything if you can play old rugged cross. They just will. If you're a musician, you can get away with a lot if you are able to play a song that somebody likes. The old rugged cross, for instance. And people will look at you, and you could be the most derelict, shipwrecked human being in all eternity. But if you can play a decent song, then you can get away with just about anything. This this puts into light for me the lives of Elvis and Hank Williams and Johnny Cash. It, it puts it into a brand new uh light that I can understand. These people who had tragic lives, they were musicians. And that in itself will cause people to forgive you. I played in my first beer joint in the winter of my youth. I was a teenager, a young teenager. And where I live is Dry County. At the time, you could not buy liquor or uh, alcohol or beer uh, from a beer joint or a grocery store on a Sunday. Now, a lot of people who did not grow up in dry counties or dry parts of the U.S. have no idea what I'm talking about. This is why playing in a beer joint was such a big deal. So we didn't have, uh, at least to my knowledge, any beer joints except across the county line. Now, beer joints are very different, very, very different than a tavern or a bar. A tavern is something they have in the city, a big city. Where a lot of uh, people who work very hard will stop in on their way home from work and they'll sit down at the bar and above the bar there will be a television set broadcasting in a hockey game i don't even know how to play hockey never seen a hockey match in my life i, I suppose it's uh, i suppose it's worth watching because a lot of people gather in these taverns i was in new york city uh, one winter and I saw a lot of men getting off work and they were frequenting a place that looked like a beer joint except it wasn't a beer joint it was a tavern um, very similar but very different too and it's not a bar either a beer joint is not a bar a bar is a place where where single people go and they look uh, to to find love in all the wrong places it's really a glorified meat market but a beer joint, the humble American beer joint, is a very, very strange animal. It's across the county line, just across the county line where it is legal to drink beer on a Sunday or whatever. It is just out of reach from the fundamentalist evangelicals that I grew up with. It's just right there on the edge of creation. And these places have a seedy reputation, much more seedy than the American tavern. The taverns in the city, well, that's just a place men go. It's just what they do. Ain't no big thing. A beer joint, well, that's where the devil lives. That's where Satan's own derelict souls gather to drink the nectar of evil, which is known as Budweiser. This is where all people who have abandoned the good values that they've been raised with go. And in a beer joint, there's always music. Always, 
on a little plywood stage in the corner. You're going to hear music, usually of the country persuasion. It was beer joint across the county line that me and my cousin Ed Lee knew about. And we had even frequented it a few times, but only from the outside. We'd ridden our bikes there and we'd peeked in the windows and we'd seen the music. The local band, uh, the Hopalong Dukes, led by an old man named Luke. Good old boy with white hair, tall, a little bit overweight. Played a mean guitar. Sometimes he'd pick up a fiddle and he'd play that too. They played old country songs. Hank Snow, Hank Williams, uh, Lefty Frizzell, Ernest Tubb. There was an upright bass, a small drum set. Sometimes they'd play Bob Will standards like Take Me Back to Tulsa, I'm Too Young to Marry. Take Me Back to Tulsa, I'm Too Young to Wed Thee. Or they played Let's Go Back to Alabama, Let's Go Find My Dear old mama she's frying eggs and broiling hammer that's what i like about the south they'd play these songs and we listened to them outside that little that window that was lit up with a neon beer sign and i just loved it i loved it it was music unlike anything i had played in the church now to go to one of these beer joints was a true true sin yes you were breaking a big big law to go to this beer joint across the county line Never forget there was a man in our church named Brian. He was sometimes an usher at the door, handing out little Baptist tracts, letting you know what you could expect at church that Sunday or who was selling what in a classified section of the newspaper or when the ladies' uh, clothing drive was going to be or what news was going to be happening that week. He was a good man, chatty disposition. I remember one night... Uh, rumor had it that he had been discovered at a joint across town that was even worse than the joint I was just telling you about. It was a beer joint where the cocktail waitresses didn't wear enough to floss their teeth with. This was one of them places that was the next level beyond a beer joint, and it was it was almost a sin hole, which is its own thing. A sin hole is is they might have a piano player. Um, I'll stop right there because it's a family podcast. He was caught there. At least they thought they had caught him there. His little white truck was parked in the parking lot, and and brother Larry was the man in our church who made the rounds. He would just peruse the towns and he would peruse the nearby communities and he would he would look in the beer joint parking lots to see if any cars were there that he recognized. Well, by Brian was not a complete toddler in these matters. He was a grown man who knew how to cover his tracks. He drove his little white truck there and unfastened his license plate and put it in his front seat and locked the door. And so when Brother Larry was driving by that night, he saw that little white truck, Brian's truck, and he pulled into the parking lot and looked around at the truck. He said, I know that's Brian's truck. It's got to be Brian's truck. And so Brother Larry got out a little grease pencil, little little white grease pencil, and he mar- made a mark on the corner of Brian's windshield that said 3 colon 16. 3 colon 16. Uh, probably after the verse, John three sixteen, which all Baptists love, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, who should, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, uh, provided he does not drink beer. And then when it was all said and done, the very next Sunday, 
Brian showed up in his little blue serge sport coat and his necktie tied up good, and he showed up to pick up his stack of flyers to stand by the door and pass them out to the children of God who came to sit in the pews. And Brother Larry came up to him and approached him. He said, were you at that joint, that sin hole across town on Saturday night last night? Brian said, no, Lord, no. Are you? Lord, no. And at that point, Brother Larry leaned in to smell his breath. This is what all trained ushers do. They can sniff so well that sometimes law enforcement officials use them to track missing children. Because an usher can smell one drop of alcohol within 45 gallons of water. Look it up. Scientific fact. He leaned in to Brother Brian and he said... He said, you sure you weren't at that joint, that sin hole? And Brian said, I'm, I swear to God. Oh, Lord. Now nah, he'd done it. Brother Larry marched down into the church parking lot. Brian was following him. He pointed out that little mark on his windshield, 316. And it all went downhill from there. We never saw Brian again at our church and he was a lifelong Presbyterian after that. Presbyterians, they have it made. They, they're, like my mother used to say, they're Baptists who want to drink but can't afford to be Episcopalians. And so this is what I was dealing with when I would go and visit these beer joints. Well, I got a call one winter day, a call from Luke, who represented the Hopalong Dukes. Oh, I was excited. I mean, I couldn't believe it. He called my house. He called my house. I answered the phone. It was me. He, he said, is this Sean? I said, yes, it's Sean. He said, well, I got someone to ask you. Would you like to play piano in the Hopalong Dukes? We're missing our piano player. He's, he's moved away. And we got to have a piano player or else we can't play songs that we normally play. Like the Tennessee Waltz. And I said, me? I mean, this was a professional band. They were going to pay me to play as a teenager. They were going to pay me to play in their band and a beer joint. And once you turn professional at something, your life will forever be different thereafter. I was so flattered, so honored, so humbled, and so completely overwhelmed by this that I accepted immediately. And then I felt this creeping in my gut. I couldn't tell anybody about it. So I told my cousin Ed Lee, who was probably the only person in my life who would have understood it and been as excited about it as I was. Cousin Ed Lee said, oh, my God, you got invited to play at the beer. You got you. You. I said, yeah. Yeah. He wanted me to come play. Can you believe it? He said, well, what'd you say? I said, I said, yes. Cousin Ed Lee slapped his knee and said, hot diggity spit. I can't wait. So we showed up that winter night. It gets dark here early in Florida around 4.30. Our cousin Ellie and I had ridden our bikes. We walked in before business hours, and it was an empty beer joint with an old woman behind the bar who had a face like old shoe leather and a voice that sounded like a pack of menthol misty slims. And she said, can I help you boys? Oh, it's perfect. It was perfect. There was a little stage, plywood stage in the corner with a drum set and old amplifiers and a guitar on a stand and an upright bass that was sitting on its side and a spinet piano, a spinet piano posed right by the stage. 
It was your perfect all-American beer joint with the with the wood paneling and the deer heads on the walls and the mounted bass and the mounted trout. And right over the pool table was this mounted boar's head with tusks. He was just peering down at the world as if to say, there is no going back once you come inside this place. You will never, ever regain possession of your immortal soul. It now belongs to the underworld. I was a little bit scared, but also a little bit exhilarated. Uh, for one thing, I couldn't believe I'd been asked to be here, and for two, I didn't know exactly what to do now that I was here. It was right about that time that uh, Luke came walking through the door. Old Luke came walking through the door, had his uh, ostrich skin boots on and his Levi's that were tight enough to show every part of his body that God gave him. Uh, these were called rodeo jeans, uh, or what we call them, Ken Barbadol rodeo jeans. They were very, very small, even though even though Luke was kind of a big man and ought not be wearing things like that. He got up to the stage. He said, hey, uh, play me something. I like to hear, hear what I'm working with. My cousin Ed Lee sat at a cocktail table right up next to the stage, and the woman behind the bar leaned on her elbows, and they expected me to do something. So I sat behind the piano. I played one of the only five songs I knew, which was Old Rugged Cross. Played it for everybody. Luke clapped for me when he was done gently and just reminded me that uh, any man who can play a song like that at Old Rugged Cross gets forgiven of a lot of, a lot of things he'd done. Then I introduced my cousin Elite to him. Luke said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He'll have to leave. I said, why? He said, well, he's underage, and this is a beer joint. I said, but I'm underage. He said, oh, but you're an underage musician, and there's a difference. You can be forgiven of a lot of things just being a musician. He said, I'll have to ask management about that. I don't know if uh, if he can be in here. And uh, Ed Lee said, well, I'm a musician, too. I play the tambourine. And Luke looked at him and said, ah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, he asked management about it. They let it fly. Cousin at least sat up front. We were not allowed to touch any alcohol under threat of our own lives. I would be immediately excommunicated from the band if I touched it. But I certainly could look at it. And I did. In between musical sets, I would go up and sit at the bar and I just watched these men with their glasses full of golden amber drinking this beer. This beer like it was medicine. There's a different kind of attitude at a beer joint. It's fraternal. It's it's as if the men in this place are part of a club. There's there are two uh, there are two distinct feelings kind of floating around a beer joint. There's in here-ness and out thereness. It's an us versus them mentality. There's us, and we understand each other here inside this little room. And there's them. There's the, the out-thereness, the them. They don't understand us. They don't know who we are. They don't get what we go through. They're judgmental. They're, they're this, they're that. Yeah, that's what's at a beer joint. Well, I did this for a few weeks. A few weeks I played music. I had more fun than I've ever had. More fun than a duck in a hat. I remember waking up one morning... It was uh, my mother who stirred me awake. And I opened up my eyes, and I looked at her in the face. 
and I yawned. I yawned, and my mother brought her nose directly to my mouth, and she sniffed. She said, where were you last night? I looked around. My mother was not in a good mood. And at the time, I was laying on the bed that I slept on, which was a pull-out mattress. It was about as comfortable as sleeping on railroad tracks. And I thought as fast as I could. I thought just as fast as I possibly could. I looked at her and I said, Last night? Saturday night? Where were you? I said, um, And folks, it was right at that moment that I knew that the devil had taken possession of my soul. I'm ashamed to say it. He had he had, had his way with me. And I looked at my mother dead in the eye. And I said, I was at Saturday night prayer meeting. Oh, my goodness. And I have blundered many times. But looking at my own mother and lying, and then bringing the church into it of all things, well, hell is filled with people like this. I started to feel so bad in the following weeks that I had said this because not only had I lied to my mother, not only had I brought the church into it, but my mother had believed it. Now, I knew that the only way she had heard that I had been at a beer joint was one of two things. Either my cousin Ed Lee had told her, because he's the only other one who knew. This was impossible because cousin Ed Lee would have had to admit that he himself had been at the beer joint, and that would be suicide. The other way she could have known was if Brother Larry had been driving by and seen my bicycle there. This couldn't have been because we hid our bicycles behind the dumpster. So Brother Larry would have had to have known where to look. So this was only a rumor. My mother would have no way of validating it. So I knew I could get away with bloody murder. And bloody murder it was. I felt lower than lower than low. Not only had I lied to my mother, not only had I brought God and all his angels in on my lie, but I had lost my conscience. And I had told her something that was blatant wrong, something that would have made her grieve. And I went around and I felt just terrible about it. Terrible about it. First of all, prayer meeting was kind of one of them services that our church held that was, and I mean this with all respect, it was for complete dorks. Prayer meeting was a Saturday night service where people went and they sat in the pews and these were not your normal typical Sunday morning churchgoers. Sunday morning churchgoers are, are social churchgoers or people who are just caught up in, in routine and, and they go because they've always gone and they sing their songs and they give their money. People who go to Saturday night prayer meetings and all the other kinds of extracurricular meetings are the frozen chosen. These are the people who are a little bit weird. These are the people who go shopping for groceries at 9 o'clock at night. A lot of them were homeschoolers. There were a lot of men who wore extra brill cream and women who still wore the beehive hairdos. And their kids, their kids, oh, they were different. They were, the boys would all tuck in their shirts, even if they're wearing jeans. And the girls wore these long denim dresses that came down past their heels because God forbid you show any ankle to a teenage boy. And they would fill this room and they would do God knows what, but whatever it was, they were serious about it. This was not a typical Sunday service. And so you can imagine Cousin Ed Lee's reaction when I called him up and said, I'm not playing in the band on Saturday night. I'm going to prayer meeting and you're coming with me. He said, are you nuts? Prayer meeting? 
why in the world would I go to that? I said, because we have got to get right or we're going to die and go to hell. And I don't want to go to hell. Do you? Cousin Elise said, well, it depends on who's going. I said, well, I'm not going. So if I ain't going, then it ain't going to be no fun. So Cousin Ed Lee reluctantly agreed to attend the Saturday night prayer meeting with me. We put on our nice button-down shirt. We tucked it in. We showed up on the church steps. I had told Luke that I wasn't going to play in the band anymore, and he seemed to understand. He said there'd always be a stool open for me if I ever chose to come back. And when we walked into that sanctuary that we knew so well, that Baptist sanctuary with the rafters and the crooked steeple and the tin the tin roofing and the, the little steps that led up to the front door and the clapboard side and the vestibule with all the plastic flyer arrangements put on by the women of God, the, the, the chapel was full of people who were looking at us with strange eyes. Strange, strange eyes. They knew things about us. One of the ushers shook my hand, Brother Larry. He said, Welcome to the house of the Lord. And I just looked him in the eye and said, Thank you, sir. And I found the back pew. One of the church ladies came and gave me a hug. And she smiled at me with her cool reptilian eyes. Eyes that looked at you and communicated one basic fact. It was the fact that said, I can quarter a chicken with my bare hands, boy. Yeah, that's that's a church lady for you. Even Melody uh, Hitchell was, was sitting across the church aisle from us. She was looking at me and Ed Lee. She was our age. She was pretty. We thought she was hotter than oven mitt. She looked right at me and Ed Lee, and she gave us this face, these low, furrowed eyebrows, and, and this scowl look. And we felt like we were being uh, sized up. We felt as though everybody knew where we'd been the last few Saturdays, and everybody knew about the lie that we had told. And so we slumped in our pew a little bit while the preacher man took the stage. And he looked around the room, the preacher man, and it got deathly quiet. And he, he made a little note in his mind of who was sitting there. This is what they did at prayer meeting, I guess. There was a lot more silence going on at a prayer meeting than went on in regular Sunday church. And Ed Lee and I just kind of slumped even a little bit lower into our pew. We felt the unexpected dread was going to come upon us. It was the feeling that you get just before a tornado when the whole world turns kind of yellowish gray and there's no wind movement and the clouds are, are making these odd Pillsbury Doughboy shapes in the sky that are totally unnatural and somewhat demonic. And they are, they are letting you know that impending doom is on its way. Well, the preacher man grabbed the pulpit and he looked around in the audience and he locked eyes with me. And then his eyes got a little bit warmer and his smile grew across his face and his cheeks got a little bit rosy and he, he, he was grinning. He let go of the pulpit and he came down off the altar and he walked up the center aisle and he came right to me and he said, why, I am just so glad to have you here today, Sean. Ed Lee, welcome. I'm so, we're, we're so glad to have you with us. And by God, he seemed to mean it. 
Well, no sooner had he said that than he invited us to, to stand so that everybody could welcome us. And I sensed immediately that there was a very different feeling in this church than there was normally in the church. There was a feeling of fraternization. There was a feeling of in-hereness and, and out-thereness, us versus them. The same feeling I'd felt in the beer joint. It was the same feeling, only in reverse. There was a feeling that the people out there didn't understand the people in here. And the people in here were, were silently being criticized by their critics and judged by those who looked on. Interesting. Interesting to me. And we sat back down and the preacher man squatted eye level with me. I was sitting on the side just by the aisle. He said, hey, would you like to play a song for us? Would I like to play a song for y'all? Oh, boy. I looked toward the back and I looked toward the side exits and I expected to see a man with a noose and a black hood come walking out and throw it around my neck or I expected to see four heavyset deacons come up and grab me by the elbows and drown me in the baptismal. But that didn't happen. It was just silence there for a little bit while I thought it over. I said, sure, I'll play a song. And so they marched me up to the piano and I sat down behind it and there was a pregnant silence and I thought, what song do I play? I certainly can't play She's a good-hearted woman in love with a good-timing man. And red-headed strangers just don't seem to fit right here. Neither does there's a tear in my beer. Hmm. Hmm. I know. I'll play Old Rugged Cross. So I did. I played Old Rugged Cross to the best of my ability. I wasn't very good. I certainly wasn't, wasn't as good as our normal pianist. But I did give it my all. When I finished, I'll never forget it when that, that preacher man took the pulpit and he said, let's give Sean a hand. When people in church give you a hand, what they're really doing is telling you how much they appreciate you. They clapped for me and gave me a standing ovation. A standing ovation. I'd never had a standing ovation it's a humbling thing. If you've ever had a standing ovation, it will make you nearly cry. Not because you're so overwhelmed with pleasure, but because you're so overtaken with the feeling that you do not deserve this. Because you don't. We're human. We have a backstage view of ourselves. We know that when people say good things about us, that they are not true. We know what we look like behind closed doors. At least I do. And I did then. You know, I went and I found my seat and I looked across the aisle at, at Melody Hitchell, who was looking back at me, only this time she was smiling. And I realized, yes, I come from people who tend to be somewhat judgmental. And yes, I come from people who consider their role in life to be somewhat of a critic. And yes, I had made a grievous sin by telling my mother things that weren't true because I was afraid of these people, but I was wrong. These people loved me. They loved me, even though they didn't understand me. They cared about me. 
for some reason. No, they weren't perfect. God knows they were farthest thing from it. But so was I, and so were the people in beer joints, and so are the people in the casinos, and so were the people in the strip joints, and so were the people in the back rooms, in the back alleys, in the pool halls, and all the other places you're not supposed to go. Nobody was any different than anybody else. There was in-hereness, there was out-thereness, there was us versus them, but for one brief moment in that tiny little fundamentalist evangelical Baptist church with the frozen chosen and a whole bunch of people who knew all the words to Old Rugged Cross, I belonged to them, and they loved me, and they overlooked a lot of things that I had disappointed them on, both me and Italy. And I realized something very important that night. You can do all sorts of terrible things. You can muff up real bad and louse up to the kingdom come. But if you can sing, people will forgive you for a lot. So why don't you sing a little bit more? Hey, thanks for listening to Sean of the South. Been your host today, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a bona fide pleasure coming to you live via the podcast airwaves and the radio waves all over this fine nation. This episode was brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family, dating back to my granddaddy, the fisherman, the woodcarver, and the Southern Baptist, who said the best way to cure idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a case knife. The music you heard behind me today was Hope Griffin, folk Americana singer, songwriter, born in Anchorage, Alaska. She is not just good, she is world class good. Do yourself a favor and visit HopeGriffinMusic.com and uh, you'll find all sorts of good stuff that you will not regret. To find anything more about what I do, you can visit SeanOfTheSouthShow.com and there you can find archived episodes dating back to our very first episode all the way to this episode, which you just heard, though I don't know why. You must have a terrible taste in podcasts. While you're at my site, I hope you take the time to drop me a line and tell me about your life because I love to do stuff for my friends if I can. Speaking of friends, friends... God loves us and wants us to be happy. At least that's what Ben Franklin said. And to prove it, God gave us beer. Adios. Adios.